0: Hey, welcome to the AOL podcast. Let's dive right into this week's message with Pastor Travis Bennett.
1: Well, if you are here yesterday, or yesterday, you might have been here yesterday. If you was, we missed you. All right. Uh, if you were here last week, we talked about Paul and Silas in the midnight hour. How many of y'all know we serve the God of the midnight hour? If you read the book of Mark, what I love about the book of Mark, it's suddenly, boom, And we serve the God of suddenly, I believe, still today. But the jailer got converted, his whole family. So now Paul goes on, uh, he goes on from there. He goes to Thessalonica, to Berea. He goes to Athens, uh, to Corinth. Then he goes on his third missionary journey where he goes to Ephesus and Macedonia in Greece. But we're going to go into Acts chapter 17 tonight. I'm going to go real quickly through Thessalonica because uh, in Berea. Because I really want to focus our attention on Athens and his message at the Sermon on Mars Hill. All right, y'all ready? Acts chapter 17, you can read along. This is the biggest Bible on Washington Street right here. All right, the biggest Bible. Acts chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Polina, Pol, whatever, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Imagine that. Where would they go after what we've seen in his MO here? Uh, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them. Imagine that. And for three Sabbath, Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, look at that. I want you, I'm, I'm going to mention something right here. I didn't put this in the notes, but I want you to see something he said in Thessalonica that he does not say at Mars Hill. But it says, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous... And taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob. Imagine that. People are after Paul again. Set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. Now, this isn't the Jason from Halloween and all of that. that he comes being resurrected all the time. All right. Just putting that out there. All right. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren from before the city authorities shouting. These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the uh, decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and city and authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released him. So, the Supreme Church, the Supreme Church founder forged ahead along with the faithful companionship of his co-worker Silas. Paul in keeping with his mo returned to his preferred place to start in the synagogue many believed including a large number of Greek men and influential women that was sufficient to stir jealousy among the Jewish leaders to the point that Paul and his team were forced to escape under the cloak of darkness by night. Now we get we see that right here in verse 10. It says, the brethren immediately, this is uh, now that they're at Berea, uh, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether uh, these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well. Sometimes people just won't leave you alone. They'll find you. Agitating and stirring up the crowd. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. And Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and received a command for for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible they left. So now, they entered Berea, and again again preached in the local synagogue. A more sophisticated crowd than the people in Thessalonica, the Bereans' eagerness led them to examine the scriptures daily, to see whether these things were so. Let's look first at verse 11. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. You can't pass up the opportunity to see what a great example they were. No matter how gifted or charismatic or well-trained and experienced your Bible professor or pastor may be. You should say amen. Hallelujah. Form the healthy habit of digging into the scriptures yourself. Amen. I'm going to tell you that again. Form that healthy habit. Don't just take it from me, but you take it home and you study it. Just like this weekend we chewed on uh, John chapter 4. I hope you've been chewing on the word. Honor unlocks honor. Honor unlocks miracles. Honor first starts with the word of God. Architects and construction people use precise measurements to ensure a precise result. They don't go by how they feel. Amen? They carefully check their work by inches and feet. Not even seasoned builders rely on guesses. They stay with the standard. The scriptures are your measuring tool for making sure the teaching you receive is straight and true. So always keep digging in the word of God personally. Verse 12 says, Therefore many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also... They came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowd. So the result of their ministry was the founding of another church in that city. Praise the Lord. But it was not all cookies and cream. Don't assume critics uh, in one place won't follow you to another. If they are determined, they will dog your steps. If they didn't like you in one place, they probably uh, won't like you in your next place. And when you move on to the next place, they show up there, too. Critics multiply. I'm not talking about crickets. I'm talking about critics. That's especially true if you're being used effectively and people are embracing the truth. Critics hate truth because it sets people free. Their hope is to silence the message every way possible. Maria is a perfect example of this. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul, this is verse 14, out to go as far as the sea. And Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible they left. So finally the believers in Berea figured they'd had enough of that. And encouraged Paul to head for the Aegean coast. Silas... And Timothy would remain in Berea with Luke to settle the restless community. So Paul left Berea and headed for the next city, the city of Athens. The intellectual capital of all of history. The city of Aristotle, of Plato, of Socrates. And he was all alone. The Athenian architecture alone was overwhelming. To this day, the Par- Parthenon is considered the most archaeological- architectural architectural sophisticated building in history to allow for optical illusion. It was constructed in such a way that the roof lines are, conca- on co- are concave and the columns lean inward so that the structure looks perfectly straight when viewed from any direction at any distance. To make matters worse, this big, busy metropolis was covered with idols. One Athenian poet wrote there were more idols in this city than there were people. We can hardly imagine the place. This is great context, especially him going in there. The demonic presence, presence was oppressive as the godly apostle strolled the streets. Now we go to the city of Athens. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic uh, philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities uh, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, uh, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenian and the strangers visiting, they're used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. While awaiting the arrival of his missionary partners, perhaps to pass the time, Paul ventured in the crowded streets of this huge metropolis. Heading to soak up the sights and sounds of the Greek culture, he shook his head in dismay when he encountered, I believe, was a culture at its worst. What we see in verse 16 is that it vexed him deeply and his spirit was being provoked within him. Because in the intellectual center of the world, there were over 3,000 altars and temples built to different deities. The temple dedicated to Aphrodite with temple uh, prostitutes abounding was man's attempt to justify sexual promiscuity. Promiscuity. I do like that word, but I always have a hard time saying it. The temple of Zeus was for those with a Clint would make-my-day mentality who were into savagery. The temple of Bacchus was, or Bacchus was for those who enjoyed alcohol. Paul's heart was stirred within him. But notice that he neither mobilized people politically to campaign against idolatry nor gathered a group of people to take a stand culturally. But what did he do? Verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. What did Paul do about the idolatry that broke his heart? He talked. In the church and on the street, Paul dialogued daily concerning the idolatry that gripped the city. Mom and Dad, we have the responsibility and privilege to talk to our kids constantly. To share with our kids or grandkids consistently. To invest in our kids wisely. Not so much telling them what to do, but teaching them how to think. So that slowly but surely, they will make the right decision. How do we teach our kids how to think? Through the scriptures. How long has it been since, like Paul, you've talked with your kids in depth concerning issues uh, as they relate to the word. In Second Kings chapter 4, we read the responsibility of one of the young men who studied under Elisha. Was to prepare breakfast. But when the other students dove into the meal. They spit it out saying. This stuff is terrible. There's poison in the pot. Spitting and sputtering. They were about to dump the whole thing. When Elijah said. Hold on. Don't dump it. Take the meal. The good stuff. And pour it into the bad stuff. They did. And a miracle transpired. For when the good was poured in. The poison dissipated. That's the key mom and dad. We're not to pick the poison out of our kids' lives, for that will only lead to legalism and result in resentment and rebellion. Instead, we're to pour in the mill of the word. When our kids are poisoned by the pottage of this world, for greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Not only are we to pour in the mill, but we are are to let the dirt go. For in 2 Kings 5, we see another uh, relevant example in the life of Elisha. Naaman... A Syrian who had leprosy was told by Elisha to dip in the Jordan River seven times. When Naaman obeyed, he was healed immediately. He then said to Elisha, I must go back to Syria, but I want to take some soil from Israel. Y'all remember the story? With me so I can worship Jehovah at home. You see, in the region of the world, um, I've studied this before. The prevailing point of view was that gods were local and could only be worshipped on the soil of the country of their origin. That is why Naaman wanted to take the dirt from Israel back to Syria. Elisha's response said, go in peace, do it. Elisha, what are you doing? I I protest. You know that the God of Israel is not a local deity to be worshipped superstitiously. Why didn't you correct Naaman? But upon further reflection, I believe there's a wise reason. Elisha let Naaman return to Syria with dirt from Israel. That is, Elisha knew Naaman's understanding of God was very limited. Naaman had been touched by God, had received healing from God, but he was not yet very deep in the knowledge of God. Did Elisha give him a lecture of theology? No. Elisha simply let him go his way knowing that as a brand new baby believer, he would in time discover he didn't need the dirt at all. So too, mom and dad, if we fight every... um, Every side issue of our kids' struggle. What am I saying here? If we fight every side issue our kids struggle with, when they face the crucial issues, the ones dealing with sin and and black and white matters, we will not have their attention. We see a lot of Christian young people whose whose circuits are blown because of well-meaning parents that pushed too hard on non-essential matters and fought the wrong battles. Consequently, as a father, I have to pray, Heavenly Father, help me to know what issues are essential for my kids. Help me see which questions need to be addressed and help me, Lord, to let the bags of dirt go. Folks, our father delights in dilemmas without easy answers because they they make us go to him. A lot of us. Would rather talk to a pastor, read a book, or seek counsel from a friend. But in, doing, in so doing, we are robbed of the opportunity of cultivating a deep, intimate, eternal relationship with a father who says, See me for specific instructions. Search the scripture daily, and I'll guide you and show you what battles need to be fought. For I alone know the hearts of your children. Love that scripture. Verse 18, it says, and also some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be proclaiming a strange deities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. The Epicureans, you need to know this, and Stoics now get involved. Epicureans were the philosophers who said, eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die, so satisfy yourself sensually. Live the good life. Relax. Take it easy. Epicureans were couch potatoes. The Stoics, on the other hand, um, were aerobic instructors. Be disciplined, they said. Free yourselves from anything that is emotional, sensual, and material. The Epicureans said enjoy a life, while the Stoics said endure life. Neither considered eternal life. Neither Stoic, nor epicurean believed in eternal life therefore paul's talk about the resurrection captured the attention of both aren't you thankful for the anointing amen so in verse 19 it says and they took him and brought him the arepagus saying to the arepagus saying may we know that this teaching is which you are may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming verse 20 for you are bringing some strange things to our ears so we want to know what these things mean the areopagus which is mars hill was 337 feet in elevation and located in the center of athens it was a place where philosophers hung out and where the council of education and religion met daily whenever a new religion uh, religion thought whenever a new religious thought was presented it had to clear the council of education and religion I find it fascinating that the Athenians, uh, the smart, smartest men in history from the world's perspective, said religion and education are inseparable. How far we have come from that today. That's a different sermon for another day. Right? So verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So the Athenians... Endlessly analyze and continually discuss new things. But folks, if it's true, it's not new. If it's true, it's not new. How I many of y'all know there's nothing new under the sun? And if it's new, it's not true. What's the what's the Athenians um, what's what's the Athenians needed? What the Athenians needed? What saints? today need is not some novel truth or new understanding we need a return to the old truths that have been with us from the very beginning if you're searching for some new book tape or teaching that will suddenly unlock the mystery of spirituality and i'm i'm i love books y'all know that about me you'll be in a wild goose chase paul warned That in the last days people will not endure sound doctrine. But will heap up unto themselves teachers who will tickle their ears with some strange doctrine. Let's look at it. Second Timothy 4.3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for those for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Don't y'all believe that is true today in 2023? How I thank the Lord for every church family that has over the months and years determined to know the word and the sound doctrine of the timeless book. Now we get to the famous sermon on the sermon on Mars Hill. Paul didn't need a pulpit to preach. The platform mattered uh, little to him. And he desired? All he desired was an audience. But surely at this moment, he realized his place of preaching in Athens was not an insignificant location. He was on the prominent Arapagus. This body of intellectuals excited the preacher's dream. It represented one of the choicest opportunities Paul would ever have. So let's read it together. Verse 22. So so Paul stood in the midst of Arapagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For a while I was passing through and examining the object, "...the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has uh, appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and Arpegat and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Y'all ready? I believe you'll get something out of this. Looking directly into their eyes, he began, men of Athens, and he was off and running. What a message he proclaimed. It doesn't take three minutes to read, but in that short time, he takes them where they need to go. I believe they stood riveted by his words. Their minds never wandered. The reason Paul could speak as he did was because he felt what he felt. And he felt what he felt because he saw what he saw. Great sermons begin with the insights drawn from seeing What others no longer see and feeling what the majority no longer feel. He spoke to these intelligent men who, if degrees were given then as they are now, would have had numerous letters strung past their names. No notes, no Dakes Bible or concordance to coach him along the way. No cue cards or teleprompter. He simply stepped up and delivered. Men of Athens, I observe you are very religious in all your aspects. What's that movie? I see you as a very religious man. What a great beginning. No insult. No double up fist. No frowning put down. He simply tells them what he had observed over the last few days while visiting the city. He had observed that they were a very religious people. Notice he didn't say Christian. He said religious. There's a difference. So they received Paul's opening line as a compliment. Verse 23, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Although the Athenians had 3,000 altars and temples in their city, worried that they might have missed or forgotten someone, they dedicated a huge altar to an unknown God. I'm sure every man listening to Paul had seen that very altar he was talking about. They knew about the unknown God. It may have been a source of anxiety for some who wondered if they had missed one of the gods. They wouldn't want to overlook a God after all. So they dedicated an altar to a nameless God just in case. Remember, they had already called Paul a babbler. Remember? So they knew precisely which altar Paul had in mind. They could picture the image now glowing in their minds. Paul began with the uh, the familiar so that he might explain the unfamiliar. Great technique. He, He knew his plan, but his audience did not. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Guess what, men of Athens? You know that God down there on the corner of Zeus and Pericles? I know the God's name. I'm here to introduce you to him today. The God who made the world and all the things in it, verse 24, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. God is our creator. The unknown God is the God who made everything, Paul declared. He's too big for any singular temple or any carved altar, no matter how beautiful or impressive it might appear. Remember in Exodus chapter 20, it says you shall make an altar of earth for me and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. In other words, the Lord said, if you build me an altar, make it very simple, preferably of dirt. If you use rock, don't carve or polish it. Keep it simple so that the attention of the people will remain focused upon me instead of the altar. This gives me great hope because although I want my life to be used by the Lord, I am increasingly aware of my plainness, my earthiness. I'm not very polished. I don't know if I'm cut out to do great things for God. Yet according according to Exodus 20, these very doubts make me qualified. Paul said, we have this treasure in earthen vessel. We saw this maybe last week or the week before I brought this up. But in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, it says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessel so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We're not fancy vases. We're just plain canning jars, boasting not of our exterior, but of whom we have within. If you don't feel capable to share, witness, teach, or minister, you are an ideal candidate. Because God will get the glory, not you. Amen? So in verse 25, he says, Nor is he served by human hands, although he needs needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So God is our provider. We are not his provider. Any implication that God needs our money to keep you from going under financially is completely amiss. God needs nothing. I, however, need to tithe. For if I don't give the... The way the word instructs me to, I will become a restricted person, selfish, materialistic, and never unlike my father. The father is a giver. He loves us so much he gave the ultimate gift when he gave his son. Amen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Can you see it? Right here, Paul is describing the God of heaven. The God you and I are familiar with, but understand those eggheads had never heard of him. Paul's audience was intelligent, religious, but as lost as a ball in high weeds. Verse 26 says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, that he is not far from each one of us. God is our creator, provider, and he's our ruler. He has established the boundaries of all men, the boundaries of all nations. This means the boundaries of the nations are governed by God. There's a lot of talk today, even in Christian literature, about getting rid of nationalism. If there were no separate nations, proponents say the world could just be one big village, one spaceship, earth. In reality, however, the Bible teaches it, it was God who established nations. Not one nation. This is why we're totally against the one world order. Amen? I wish we were on YouTube. I'd say it to you. Don't cancel me. In Genesis 10, it clearly seen that after the flood, boundaries were established in which men would dwell nationally. This is part of God's plan for the world in its fallen state. Study history, and you will see the wisdom of his plan. For invariably... When a nation has overstepped its boundaries in an effort to swallow another country or culture, oppression, racial prejudice, bitterness, and death have been the result. Therefore, while there is indeed a unity of humanity in which God has made of one blood all nations, there is also diversity of nationality in which He has established boundaries for our protection until the time Jesus Christ returns to rule and reign with righteousness. Y'all believe it? Verse 28 says, For in him we live and move and have our being, or exist. As even some of your own poets have said. I love this. He brings his own po- their own poets in. For we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think the na- divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, or an image formed by the art and thought of man. Creator, provider, ruler. God is also our Father. I'm so thankful that our God is also our Father. Near the turn of the century, a little boy walking along. I thought this was good. I read this, and I had to put it in here. Walking along the Mississippi River, saw an old man on the bank and began to chat with him. Suddenly, the little boy saw the majestic riverboat, the River Queen. Making her way down the river, as the boat drew closer, the little boy stood up and began to shout at the top of his lungs, Let me ride, let me ride. The old man looked at him, smiled, and said, Sit down, Sonny. That river boat's not going to stop for you. Then the old, old man's amazement, the mighty river queen did indeed slow down and pull up to the bank. And as the little boy ran up to the, the gangplank into the arms of the awaiting captain, the old man heard him utter two words that explained it all Hi, Dad. I mean, y'all know that's the way with us. God's not going to answer you," uh, said the old, uh, "say the old men in our lives. He's too busy; he's got elections to oversee and famines to figure out. Not true. Any of us who have little children know that the cry of our children has pre- precedence over anything else we do, and the same is true of God. So, going back to the sermon, I thought you guys would get a kick out of that. I thought that was good. A deafening silence overcame the crowd. This is the preaching. This is preaching at its very best. Paul knows precisely where he wants them to go. They only know where they have been and where he is now. The man is describing a deity that have a deity they have never met. Remember Paul had little time to prepare or to write out a sermon. He began to prepare it during his days on the street. He finalized it in his head during the brisk climb up the marble steps to Mars Hill. Did you you notice? He quotes one of their own poets who said, For we also are his children. But let me tell you, says Paul, it's not Zeus. Just in case anyone started to doze off, he did a little seed picking of of his own by quoting a familiar poet uh, written by Zeus, Stoic philosopher Eratus of Soli, 3rd century B.C., had originally written, Zeus fills the streets, the marts, Zeus fills the seas, the shrines or the shores and the rivers. Everywhere our need is Zeus. We also are his offspring. That's one of the lines from that particular Eratus of Soli. It was the last line that Paul borrowed. The God whom Paul proclaimed was not Zeus. All their learning had led them down a dead-end street. This was no cheap marketplace God, whose image appeared for sale on vendors' carts and storefront windows. Paul was introducing to them the God who created the universe and demanded a response from his wondering. Having bait and hooked his audience, he now cautiously reeled in his catch with a masterful skill. Verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Creator, provider, ruler, father. Finally, God is our savior. He overlooked your ignorance. He winked at your idolatry. Here is here is where many people make a grave mistake. Because God. He overlooked your ignorance, he winked at your idolatry. Here's where the people make a grave mistake, because God is not judging them or chast- chastening them uh, or chastising them. They think they're getting away with the sin in which they're involved. What they failed to factor in, however, is the long suffering of God. Folks, we make a critical error whenever we mistake the patience of God for apathy. As Paul said, God has been gracious, but now is the time to repent, to change your mind, and to change your direction. Put yourself there. The R word. There wasn't a Stoic or Epicurean in the bunch who wasn't by now squirming in his toga. Repent. You've got to be kidding me. Change, change my mind, relinquishing all my training and my position as judge in Athens. If, if they at one time wondered if the man was crazy... What they just heard had removed all doubt. Paul boldly proposed that the God of heaven expected. in this? Paul is so bold. Expected a heartfelt response from the ones he had lovingly created. Then came the final blow in the next verse. When he would bring up the next R word. Raised from the dead. Yes. The one and only God had proven himself by raising Jesus from the dead. Verse 31. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished uh, proof to all men by raising him from the dead. In John's gospel, Jesus said the Father had committed to him all judgment. We see it in John 5, 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Therefore, Jesus is that man to whom Paul referred. I'm so grateful Jesus is my judge because having been in all points tempted like as we are, In Hebrews 4.15, he understands what I'm going through in the battles I wage. Before he began his ministry, Ezekiel was caught up by the hand of the Lord and brought to the river Shabar, where the people of Judah were held captive. Ezekiel 3.15 says, Then I came to the exiles and lived beside the river Shabar and Tel Aviv, and sat there seven days where they were living, causing uh, consternation among them. Thank you, Margaret. So, before Ezekiel delivered his heavy message of judgment, look at this. God first had him sit with the captives. So, too, Jesus looked on the multitude with compassion. In Matthew nine thirty six, who said, "Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited, like sheep without a shepherd." He didn't come down on the sheep; he felt for them. Why? Because he sat where they sat. He walked where they walked. Our leader, Jesus Christ, has gone through everything. We're going through or will ever face he understands it others might say what's wrong with you not our Lord he says I understand I was tempted in the same way I know exactly what you're struggling with before I can be effective in ministry I must first sit where others have sat It's easy to come down on people, easy to find fault with people, easy to be critical of people. But when you sit where they've sat, you have a ministry based on compassion and mercy, forgiveness and love. I believe the Lord allows us to go through hurts, pains and struggles physically, emotionally and spiritually because they are what gives us hearts of compassion. Notice Paul slipped slipped the resurrection in before they could turn him off. I want to point something out about what I just said right here. How I many y'all know every good and perfect gift coming from above? But I think lots of times uh, people think that wounds will stop them of being effective. But I think that wounds and uh, things that we go through, they're the very thing that launch us into what God has for us. And I was, uh, as I was meditating on even going over this, these notes again today, the Lord reminded me of this story. And there's some stories in the Old Testament sometimes that I read them. I'm like, Lord, really? I mean, y'all know this is an inspired word of God. And there's some stories in the Old Testament that I think, like this one I'm about to share with you. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 20 of Elijah. But there's some stories that I read and I think to myself, like, Lord, why in the world did you put that in there? I mean, I know it's for me, but there's times that I read over it. And there's lots of... um, Lots of revelation the Lord's given me because there's not much heading up to this story. There's a little bit more after it, but leading up to it. But I'm just going to go ahead and read, read it to you and uh, probably commentate as I go. But it's found in 1 Kings chapter 20 and verse 35. It says, Now a certain man of the sons of the prophet said to another by the word of the Lord, Please strike me. But the man refused to strike him. So this, this, uh, this, the prophet goes up to this man uh, that is a soldier, and he says, hey, strike me with your sword. Would you please do this? (laughs) All right. And so in verse 36, then the prophet said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you leave me, a lion will kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. Now, uh, before I even go into this, the first thing that I think of is this. if, If the prophet of God tells me, to strike him, and I don't strike him. If I don't strike him, a lion's gonna. How many of y'all know? Uh, another translation says that this is his neighbor, uh, that that he asked to do this, and he, and if he tells me that a lion's gonna get me when I don't strike him, I'm thinking to myself, I'm moving in with him, or I'm not gonna leave the prophet of God. I'm gonna stay next to him. You know, if I can outrun the prophet of God, I know the lion will get him before he gets me. But also too, I, I also I also think this man. You don't mess with the voice of God. You don't mess with the prophet of God. It always, it always, there may be some people out there, uh, preachers and things like that, that they may be contrary to some things that I believe, but it always scares me when I see people making fun of them. You can go across YouTube and there was guys, that's all they are, is YouTube preachers that are critics of other people. I'm telling you, that is risky, dangerous business. Amen. Like that minister may have not ministered to you, but he has ministered to somebody. And so don't be messing with that. But so and and as soon as he left him, it's like I always read that. And I always think, well, why did you leave him if he told you a lion was coming? A lion found him and killed him. Now, verse 37, and the prophet found another man and said, please strike me. So the man struck him hard and wounding him. Think about that. Put yourself in the story here. You got two soldiers. He's like, no, I won't do it. All right? So the line comes after him. And I always think this. When he went to the other guy, he's like, whatever you want me to do, I will do it. Right? Uh, you know, and I also think about this growing up. I don't know if you ever heard this before when you're lined up to get a whipping. I know Thomas has heard this. But you're, when you're lined up to get a whipping, I got this before. I remember being there. And my dad saying to me, now you asked for this. I'm like, now I'm asking for mercy and grace. <laughs> How many of y'all ever had that dad or or that mom, you asked for this? Like, no, I did not. I may have asked for a Coke or a Dr. Pepper, but I did not ask for the whipping that I'm about to endure. And so um, that's what I think about this particular story right here. Please strike me. He's like, you bet. You asked for it. Come on. I'd put my back into it. You know what I'm saying? I don't want a lion coming after me. So So the man struck him hard, wounding him. Isn't this a crazy story? So the prophet left waiting for King Ahab by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed by, the prophet called out to the king and said, Your servant went out in the middle of the battle. Behold, a man turned aside and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If for any reason he is missing, then your life shall be required for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. I want to skip past all of this because I really want to get to my point and get back to the the message, but... Verse 43, so the king of Israel went to his house resentful and sullen and came to Samaria. My whole point is this. He knew that he wouldn't get the attention of the king unless he was wounded. And I want to tell, I just want to, I want to put this out there. I want to tell you probably the most inspiring messages that I've ever heard is not coming from a place of somebody who can quote a lot of scripture or somebody who's had a great revelation of something. The Some of the best sermons that I've ever heard is people that have lived through a wound that God set them up for other people to be set free. And so in this particular story right here, I see this. I don't know why it's in there other than for the fact to show us a lots of things. Like the first thing that I see is this. If you say no to what God wants to do in your life, he will find somebody else. Also, too, I see this. What was the whole point of him getting wounded? So he would get the attention of the king. I'm not saying that God wounds us on purpose. Every good and perfect gift cometh from above. But you may not understand the divorce. You may not understand the bankruptcy. You may not understand the death of somebody. I'm telling you, God will use you and the perspective how God witnessed to you and encouraged you through that time for somebody else who's coming down the road. Amen? I feel a sermon brewing. There's a lot more there. Isn't that a good story? Don't mess with the man of God. Notice Paul slipped the resurrection in before they could turn him off. He had been telling people all the street. Uh, On the streets about the Savior, Jesus, since he had arrived through the gates. Perhaps the news of Paul's teaching had crossed the Aegean Sea and made its way to the Athenian marketplace. They figured the corpse of this Jesus was now rotting in the grave. Paul boldly told them otherwise. He was, in fact, alive. How many of y'all know he is still, in fact, alive? They would consider no such nonsense. They began to tune him out. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. I'll tell you this from experience. Some will always mock. They mocked Noah for a hundred years. You're all wet, Noah, they said. But when judgment came, they missed the boat. The same response happens today. Every effective sermon results in some sneering and rejecting and immediate negative response. Some are intrigued enough to return for a second hearing. A small group of others believe, and that is the case in this story. Verse 33, so Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were those people. After reviewing this sermon and reading the ending, you can't help but see... You can't help but see we are just like these in the story. There are three different types. Either you reject truth, are intrigued by the truth, or you believe the truth. In other words, your response in faith to God's word. You respond in faith to God's word. Notice Paul didn't wait around for a show of hands. After delivering his message, he stepped off the marble platform and went out of their midst. Notice there was no singing of songs or keyboard playing in the background. No emotional appeal for response, not not begging or threatening or manipulation, no apology for being unprepared. He ended his sermon and left. What a great model. Signed by God, sealed by the Spirit, delivered by a lowly servant. But I also want you to read some commentary by someone unknown. I believe it's a great thought. Y'all ready? I, I have a preacher's commentary. They don't always say they got all these preachers at the beginning, but I thought this was something else. I read tons of commentary. And I thought this was worth sharing with you guys. Paul left Athens, and I personally believe, and I don't know who this I is, but I personally believe that the message he gave there is recorded not as a model to copy, but as an example of failure. Why? In most other cities Paul visited, a church was born as a result of his ministry. Not so in Athens. Even though Paul gave an incredibly polished sermon, only a couple of folks believed. Why? I believe it's because in Acts 17... Paul never mentioned the crucifixion of Christ, nor even the name of Jesus. Why? Could it be that knowing he was in the company of brilliant men, Paul thought the coarseness of the crucifixion was not culturally correct? In church leadership, journals and seminars today, the overriding message is that we must be culturally relevant. That is why we see ministries, churches, Bible studies, and witnesses trying to be careful that they are relatable philosophically and relevant culturally but as a result very few believe from athens paul went to corinth and in his letters to the corinthians he explains how he came to them 1 corinthians 1:17 for christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of christ would not be made void for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of god think about this this is the very next city that he goes to for indeed jews ask for signs and greeks search for wisdom but we preach christ crucified to jews a stumbling block and to the gentiles foolishness but to those who are the called Both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. A great church was born in Corinth and a powerful, impacting work of God took place there. Because Paul said, after Athens, I came to you in weakness, fear and trembling, preaching nothing but Jesus and him crucified. First Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, he goes on. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming you, you proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Gang, it doesn't matter whether you're preaching in South America, South Central Los Angeles, or South Medford, Oregon, wherever you go, whomever you're with, whether it be college grads or high school dropouts, liberals or conservatives, teenagers or golden agers, the key to relating to anyone and everyone is to preach the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where the power is. That's how how we will truly be cross cultural. I have found that every single question and problem in life and ministry is always answered at the foot of the cross and in the person of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Preach Jesus Christ and the power of the cross, saints. Learn the lesson of Paul. Keep your ministry focused. Keep your message simple. Point the people to the cross
0: and they'll find Jesus. Well, we want to thank you for joining us on our podcast today. We pray that you heard from God and that this message was for you. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people with this message. Arena of Life takes pride in connecting to God, to church, and to people. And we want to connect with you. So don't forget to check us out on all social media platforms, to check out our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and to download the Church Center app,